big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hello, everyone, and happy September. What the heck? Where did the time go? Before we begin this week's episode, we wanted to take a minute to thank our newest patrons, Kay and Emily. Welcome to the team. If you want to be like Kay and Emily and get exclusive access to content like our notes, screenshots of our group chat, bonus episodes, outtakes, and more, you can head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice to see how you can support the show. And now enjoy this week's episode covering the second half of episode two of the 1995 BBC version of Pride and Prejudice, starring Colin Firth and Jennifer Ely, with our guest Evan Tess Murray. This getting ready for the ball scene is peak hilarity. (laughs) It's amazing. First, we have Mrs. Bennett complimenting Lizzie's look and saying she'll never be as pretty as Jane, but she looks very well indeed. And Lizzie is just like, thank you, mother. (laughs) She's so used to it. This is the kindest you have ever been to me. So sure. Yep. Yeah, I'll take it. Then we have Lydia running around in her slip, which actually we've talked a little bit about the dresses that they wear and how they kind of look like pajamas and like, are they wearing corsets underneath? Like, what's the deal? And it looks like they wear these slips that like hold up their boobs, but otherwise it seems like it's pretty free and flowing. I'm pretty sure there's a corset underneath that. Yo, what the fuck was up with people in this time period? Like, why do you feel the need? There might even be a chemise under, like the whole thing has many, many layers. So there's like an undergarment of linen that doesn't have any shape at all. And then something over that to give it shape and then something over that, etc. It's very important to emphasize the corsets here because in Austin and in many other period pieces of this time, you will see women be faint or like lose their, not being able to like tolerate being outdoors for too long and just being sort of like of a gentle constitution. And it's not that women are weak. Right. It's that they're wearing fucking corsets and they cannot breathe. (laughs) Yeah. But walking around in your slip would be considered naked, I guess, because Lydia is running around and her mom is like, dress yourself. And she's like, I have to ask Lizzie about my dress. And she asks Lizzie about her dress. And they have this moment of Lydia being like, you look very pretty. Don't hog Wickham to yourself all night. And Lizzie's like... Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. I have to dance, too, with Collins first. And then they roll their eyes about Collins, followed by Lydia running out into the hallway, bumping into Mr. Collins. She's in the nude, essentially. She holds up her dress. This is a priceless moment. It's so good. Because Mr. Collins loses his absolute mind. He's like... uh, Yeah, he just, like, (laughs) explodes slash dies, and she just giggles like mad. And that kind of tells you everything you need to know. Exactly. What was funniest about this is that she runs out to, like, go back to her room, and then she runs into him. She goes back the way that she came instead of, like, continuing on her way. But in any event, he's going down the stairs, and he hears her, like, scream laughing about it, and he's just so embarrassed. This is also the moment when uh, the last, like, mic take I have from this episode is that Collins is, like, the campus libertarian, 
from college. The one who like wore flip-flops in winter. Mm. Oh, yeah. We had one of those. His name was Barefoot Guy. Yeah. Was he a libertarian? I don't know. We went to the same college, Becca. You remember Barefoot Guy? I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't... I, vaguely it's been it's been a minute okay yeah that's fair it's been three years for me so it's been like five for you but we had barefoot guy i think he was actually called barefoot jesus because he had like hip length hair oh yeah no no not like barefoot jesus barefoot jesus was like a chill hippie dude i'm talking about like the guy who like he's given the hot takes in history class got it yeah got it and i feel like that is absolutely mr collins for sure so then we get to the ball Taking a moment to clock everyone's outfits here. First of all, I've noted that this costume designer likes to put Jane in pinks, which I think is really nice, like softer pinks. Mm -hmm. And Lizzie is often wearing a nice like white, an off-white. And you see Caroline and Louisa, again, far more overdressed than everybody else. Yeah, question. Mm -hmm. I recognized a lot of dresses from the first episode. Was it just the color scheme or were they wearing the same dresses? Louisa and Caroline were not wearing the same dresses. It's possible some of the other background people might have been, and that Charlotte might have been a was wearing the same dress. And that would be a choice for people who like are country bumpkins who don't have more than tons one of nice fancy dress. outfits. Yeah, that makes sense. So I didn't remember Charlotte's dress from the first episode, but I just wrote down Charlotte's dress is good just because it's so different. Everyone else is in creams, pinks, occasional browns, and these like really muted color palettes, and then she comes in in this like lilac-y blue. Yeah. And I think it also makes her stand out in a bad way. It's way simpler than everyone else's. It's not in style. But it also just like, I was just like, oh, no, that's like, I loved that she had that and that it was different. It like makes it very clear her social status in comparison to the others that are at this ball, for sure. But it's also much more flattering on her than pink would be. So I was just like, yeah, it's her color. You should always wear that color. While we're on the subject of this ball, how is this ball different than the first ball? It's bigger physical bigger space it's a private ball as opposed to a public ball Mm -hmm. so that would mean that the guests are more select there's nobody outside getting drunk in the streets which was the thing in the first ball it's it's like significantly fancier too Mm. Mm -hmm. our main characters are more dressed up you get the sense that like richer people are at this ball as well someone took their coats exactly yeah it's very fancy yeah and so they they all go into the ball First, they get out of their carriage, actually, and Darcy is staring at them from the window, very well-placed there, and he makes eye contact with Lizzie and walks away. Then we go into the ball, and Caroline and Louisa are greeting everyone at the door, and they're like, oh, and all of your children are here. And Lizzie is looking around checking for Wickham, but she doesn't see him, so Bingley walks her and Jane into the ball together, which is very, just a good, he's just a good boy. He's a curly fry. Kate stopped it at that point and said, is he really a nice one? I had that problem too at first. I was like, wait, what is Bingley up to? Ah, oh, he's so good. He's just up to falling in love with Jane Bennett. Like, you know. He's just Jane, only a boy. Exactly. Like, just so nice. What I love about this actor is that he's always smiling, even when he's uncomfortable. It <laughs> yes. turns into an uncomfortable smile. Oh my it's God. so good. Yes, he's got uncomfortable smile, bored smile, sad smile, but they're all like trying to have a smile yes yeah in the the first episode he like stands up to darcy about something he's like i don't know why you're always determined to hate everyone and he's like giving me just a big smile i love him i love (laughs) him so much also i think what's really masterful is also colin firth has mastered the art of staring and grimacing in a lot of different emotions in this film Mm -hmm. like the in love staring and grimace 
the angry staring and grimace, the amused uh, staring and grimace. So many different versions of staring and grimacing. (laughs) Oh, and I also noticed that Lady Forrester is wearing the same dress. Anyway, we get into the, the ballroom and Lizzie's still looking for Wickham. She sees Darcy staring at her longingly, longingly staring and grimacing. And then Denny comes over to her and tells her that Wickham is not coming because he was pulled away on some business. And Lizzie looks very disappointed. And then that's when we get the Denny saying, I don't think his business would have been so urgent had he not wished to avoid certain people. And then he like looks at Darcy very meaningfully, which is leaving it right out there in the open for us. Oh, yeah. Denny's not subtle. He's not subtle. I really like Denny. I think he's cute. <laughs> Denny's like a kitty. He's just like cute and having a good time. Exactly. And then, oh, so then Lydia and Kitty run over with another soldier whose name I don't know. And they're like, Denny, come dance with us. And that other soldier is like, I, I beg the intrusion. I would dance with both your sisters if I could. But, you know, as it is. And what? <laughs> yeah, he was the moment. I don't, we don't, I don't know his name. But that was the moment when I was like, oh, he's a kid too. Yeah, they're like kids. Like he's. He's 17. He's being a kind of sweet, bumbling kid. And yes, he is like signed up to be a young officer or whatever. But yeah, he felt like so completely harmless to me. Yeah. That it actually made Denny feel more harmless to me. Yeah, I really like them. I think that I guess like we'll see how harmful the flirtationship is later on. And like we do even get some of that in this episode in another scene I think the next scene but right now it just really seems fun and they're at a ball like of course they're gonna party it's a party yeah I think think that's what's so great about it is it really does feel relatable but you also to get the sense that Kitty is somewhat notorious because they're having a ball and they're having a great time but you can kind of see how everybody else is interacting around them Mm -hmm. and they should so not be there right it should just be like I mean really It's only the oldest two that should really be there. End of story. Only one of them is even out in like the out sense. And then they could maybe make a case for Mary, but Kitty and Lydia should not actually be at this thing at all. Right. And we got a sense of that because Caroline looked surprised that they were there. Yeah. And we'll get into this in the dinner scene, but in terms of their notoriety, this is the family that has the five girls. Yeah, and people know that, and oh, yeah. having five girls means five opportunities for marriage. But they're like so loud and like out there, and it's just it's such a mixed bag. Like some people are like, yeah, those are the five girls, and some people are like, oh, those are the five girls. Absolutely, and I think it's also dependent like who knows them from town, who's of their same social standing, who has the same connections, who has superior connections. Mm-hmm. You see how people interact with those facts in relation to the Bennett sisters. Right. sisters. Oh my god. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> ah, we're theater kids. Yep. That was adorable. Thank you. So Lizzie sees Charlotte across the room and she goes to talk to Charlotte, but Collins swoops in there, and this is the first Collins Charlotte meeting. And Lizzie introduces him and he immediately pulls her away for their first to dance, which is disastrous. Friendly reminder that the dances in Austin are all a metaphor for sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, I know they're a metaphor for sex, but this dance is like the opposite of sexy. That's... Which, I mean, in this case... Is correct. Good. Colin's yeah. bad at sex. Yeah. He goes the wrong way. He slams into someone. It's very anxiety producing. And Darcy is watching Lizzie so bemusedly. And she sees him and she is furious <laughs> the whole time. Because 
from her perspective, like, he's the whole reason Wickham's not here. And at least if Wickham was here, yes, she'd still have to dance with Collins, but, like, she could look forward. I wrote down Lizzie is in the worst of all possible timelines, she right? Is. <laughs> she's just so miserable here. Yeah. She is. And she's not even a person who, like, lets a night get her down, usually. Because, like, you sense her trying to have a good time there, even though she's, like, kind of disappointed. But then she has to dance with Collins, and then eventually she has to dance with Darcy, and she's just, like, her night keeps devolving and devolving. I think worst possible timeline is totally accurate for this scene. Yeah, this is the disaster ball. So then, after the dance, Lizzie goes back to talk to Charlotte at long last. She is ranting. She's getting into it. She's like, oh, Darcy is the worst. I hate him so much. And then Darcy pops up and Charlotte's like, Lizzie, shh. And Darcy asks her to dance. And she has the best response <laughs> in the world. I don't know if this is how it was in the book. But she says, why I had not. I thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then she's like, why could I not think of an excuse? <laughs> yeah. She's like, as soon as he walks away, she's like, oh, so mad at herself. Oh my god, it was perfect. And then we get such a good delivery from Charlotte being like, well, you should be flattered because he's like well above you. And also like it's probably for the best that you didn't reject him because like... He's ten times Wickham's consequence. Exactly. So then she has to go dance with Darcy. And it's their first real conversation, first of all. Second of all, it's the one where she's like, you need to say something. Maybe comment on the dance and I'll say how many couples there are. And he's like, do you always talk when you dance? And she's like, yes, it's better that way. We can have the advantage of saying as little as possible. Now, comment on the dance. Mm -hmm. This is not what I pictured. And I know I knew that the dances were like this. But when I pictured their dance, I pictured them, you know, standing close to each other, holding hands, like having to slow dance like how you do but that's not how you do yeah nope nope that is not how they did in that time so it is a historically accurate dance but the way they they convey this dance being different than the collins dance you see like the close shot of their hands touching the like brief glances up and down that they do when their bodies meet and that each line has to be delivered when they're facing each other yes and they aren't often I, uh, I wrote down, oh my God, these actors, because they had to like learn the dance and then get the lines timed with the right bits of the dance and have them, act- and then they probably had to do it 7,000 times. Oh, absolutely. And all the time, just like breathing in each other's sexual tension. Yeah. So super impressed. And also it's just a hilarious little exchange where she's basically trying to give him a tutorial on small talk. Like, come on, come on, do something. And he's just like, mm. <laughs> Something noticed in the background is there is this one girl that's been at all the balls so far who has a very distinctive face and a yellow dress and her eyes are always bugging out and I think she might have just been like a young actor who was in love with Colin Firth because she gets to like hold his hand when there's like two couples in a line and she's like frozen like staring up at him so nervously and it's adorable (laughs) and she's been at all of the balls so far so I'm keeping an eye out for her she just looks terrified The other thing I noticed is a guy who has like a bit of an unfortunate haircut, but also his face the entire time is just like, save me. I don't know if you can see it from my phone. Oh, him. Oh, my God. Yes. I noticed him, too. You'll have to post that on our social. Yes, absolutely. He's he's just very important to me in the way he's staring at Jennifer Ale in this photo. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. So then their their conversation shifts from the small talk tutorial to being about Darcy himself 
or he tries to make small talk, first of all, by saying, do you often walk into Meryton? And that's when she says, yes, we had just met a new friend when you saw us there last, which, of course, brings them to the topic of Wickham. Darcy starts saying that Wickham sucks. Lizzie is like, well, maybe you suck. Maybe you suck. (laughs) And they pause for a moment. Sir William comes over, embarrasses her by saying that he hopes that this pleasure of seeing these two wonderful dancers dance together will be often repeated when Jane and Bingley get married, which is embarrassing for many reasons. You practically see Jennifer Eel like doing this thing where she's like, cut it, cut it, don't do it, don't do it. That's like the whole wall for her. It is. Yeah. She just wants everyone to stop being embarrassing. Oh, yeah. And this is where she says the thing about you once mentioned to me that your resentment once created was permanent. So you must be very careful in choosing who you resent. And he's like, yes. And he asks her why she's asking these questions. And she says she's just trying to figure him out. The ball ends. He says he wishes that she would not because it wouldn't reflect well on either of them at this point. And Mrs. Bennett is in the frame this whole time, staring at them, trying to figure out what they're talking about. And she says that it gives her great joy to uh, try to figure him out, basically. And he says, well, he would never try to take away any of her joy. And then he walks away. And she is distressed. She is verklempt, as Becca would say. Uh, actually, the word is verklempt. Oh, my God. Verklempt. <laughs> I said it wrong. I'm a bad Jew. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You don't need to know Yiddish phrases. It's just helpful for um, evoking my Judaism. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we also got the first moment where she says you would never be yourself allowed to be blinded by prejudice. It's in the title. Mm-hmm. It is in the title. Also, when she says that, I became very aware of the fact that she is blinded by prejudice as she's asking him if he's blinded by prejudice. They're both blinded by prejudice. And they both are very prideful. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I absolutely loved the delivery of I would by no means suspend any pleasure of yours, bow flee. Yep. Uh, it was beautiful. <laughs> All of Darcy's lines kind of end with bow flee. I know it's why I identify so strongly. Yep. I would also flee. That brings us to dinner, right? Yeah, that brings us to the, the dinner scene. Now, there was a moment in episode one where I said, this isn't as bad as it was in the book. That's because it wasn't the moment. The moment is now. <laughs> I was talking about Mary at the piano in the first oh, ball. Oh, oh. At, or at the party at the Lucases, and I was like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Nope, it's this scene. <laughs> and it is worse. <laughs> it is worse. It's so bad. The scene in this movie is so good at capturing why this ball is such a disaster for the Bennets. Oh. It just piles it all up. Yeah. So it's oh, yeah. all happening at once. All at once. Caroline and Lizzie get to have a conversation and Caroline tries to turn Lizzie against Wickham and Lizzie is simply not having any of it. She's like, I already knew that he was the son of a steward. That's not a fault in my mind. So leave it. And Caroline's like, well, I meant it as a friend. And sure. Yeah, sure. But this is like brilliant because Caroline's a snot and we know that and she's not very nice and we know that and she's right and we don't know that. So Lizzie is going to take anything she says and it's just going to reinforce Lizzie's own prejudices. Like, oh, well, if you don't like him, he must be fine. When actually Caroline has a little more information than Lizzie does here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This moment kind of reminded me, again, with another Harry Potter reference, but it's the moment where Malfoy says to Harry, now's the time 
for you to start hanging out with the right sort of people and like extends his hand in the first book and Harry is like I can tell the right sort for myself thanks and then doesn't take his hand now we know that Wickham sucks but this is the moment where Lizzie loses all favor with Caroline because there's no way that they're gonna be friends now she just snubbed her so yeah and I also think that Caroline's trying that thing where she's like trying to just like embarrass Lizzie and she does this so often with Wickham in particular where she's like oh sweetie I'm looking out for you that's like such a mean girl tactic like I'm trying to do you a favor because I thought we were friends I thought we were friends Caroline doesn't think they're friends Caroline wants to make Lizzie feel embarrassed and that's why she's doing this oh yeah yeah it's a I just think it's sort of masterful in both directions. Like, it doesn't make Caroline look good, but it does entrench Lizzie in her perception of what's going on in a way that, like, otherwise maybe she would start to question because she just had this interaction with Darcy that was, like, not horrific. Right. Also not great, but, you know. But not horrific. No. It did not appear to be a monster, and they made a lot of important eye contact. Very important eye contact. Then we get... Jane and Lizzie having their conversation and Jane saying that Bingley said he fears Wickham is not a respectable man and Lizzie says she thinks he's just getting that from Darcy and the framing of this is great because Jane like swoops around the other side of Lizzie so that Darcy can be framed right in between them at the table and they're talking about him and Lizzie says she doesn't blame Bingley for thinking that because of course he would trust his friend. Now that's kind of that's foreshadowing for a lot of things because Bingley needs 12 opinions, most of them Darcy's. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then we have Bingley asking for music. And he says, Caroline, can we persuade you? But before he can say that, Mary shoots up, runs to the piano with her music in her hand. And Bingley's like, oh, I, I-, I guess Mary Bennett, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, and he has the uncomfortable smile. Yeah. It's so bad, the poor boy. It's so bad. I can't even begin to describe. So Mary starts playing the piano and it's like fine at first. I'm like, all right, she's going to play badly, but it's fine. She sings. And you know what I mean when I said like I said early on that it's like when a musical theater girl who like doesn't have a terrible voice wants to sing a song, but then isn't breath supporting properly and then like gets a little flat. Yeah. And like no one asked her to sing in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. It, if she were singing in her living room, we would not be having any real problems with this. But like this isn't a performance piece. With a lot of rich people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that two things in particular make it extremely devastating. One is the dog howling along with her outside. Yes. <laughs> oh. Yes. I love that. And dog. I think what really drives home how bad this performance is, is that Louisa comes in after and starts playing flawless Beethoven. <laughs> beautifully and everybody is like oh good and you can see everyone's shoulders go down and they go back to their conversation yeah exactly while mary is playing daddy bennett is buried under his arms he's so embarrassed and like openly embarrassed at least mrs bennett in this moment is like pretending to enjoy it but nobody else is now lizzie and jane are trying to like not be seen slash it's very painful for them yes uh half of the rest of them are like i will go get a drink now Yep. 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 Meanwhile, this seems to be a good time to continue embarrassing the Bennett family. So Collins gets up and goes to Darcy and tells him that he's just found out that he is Lady Catherine de Bourgh's nephew and he has the 
ultimate pleasure of assuring Darcy that Lady Catherine de Bourgh was in the best of health eight days ago. He actually, like, glances up into the side while he calculates the number of days. Like, that's how long ago he saw her and he can't wait till he sees her again. And Darcy is, like, staring at him and then he just goes, I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) And then he says, what is your name? Because, like, they haven't been introduced. Yeah, and then he tells him his name and Darcy just turns and walks away without even saying, all right, nice to meet you. This is a perfect juxtaposition against how Wickham is with Mr. Collins. Because Wickham's, like, doing his sleazy charming thing and kind of, like, amused whereas mr darcy's like i'm not doing this and he just walks away it's like what evan it's like what you said earlier he doesn't know how to lie no he can't say well it's very nice to meet you when he's thinking goodness you're terrible yeah. exactly i don't wish to have this conversation so i will walk away now exactly exactly <laughs> that's what he does all throughout the book whenever he gets uncomfortable it's time to walk away then he goes to gossip with the sisters that's where darcy goes and lizzie and jane see this whole thing and they're mortified meanwhile mr bennett i wish the listeners could see me because he keeps lifting up his hands like he's ready to clap like it's the end of the song and then it's not the end of the song so he has to put his hands back down and he is all of us in that moment (laughs) finally mary finishes her song and everyone is like politely clapping. She launches into another one. And Daddy Bennett's like, nope, 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 nope. And this is where he says, you've delighted us long enough, child. Let other people have a turn. And it's super embarrassing. And poor Mary. Yeah, it's like painful in multiple directions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then Collins gets up like he's about to play. And he says, if he could sing, oh, how he would love to delight them. Blah, 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 blah. And that's when Louisa swoops in and plays the Beethoven. And I think it's particularly excruciating that Louisa's excellent at the Beethoven. It doesn't look like she was planning on playing. She saw Collins heading for the piano and she was like, no, we can't survive another one of these. And she just exactly. like bolted. <laughs> and she plays it unnecessarily fast. Yes. Too. And she's like, ah, just getting all the good it's out of here, all the bad it's out of here. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films, or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. 
So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. And then Mrs. Bennett starts loudly talking with her mouth full about how Collins likes Lizzie. And he at first liked Jane, but Bingley swooped in there first. So that'll be a great marriage and it'll put the girls into the path of other rich men. And she's just saying this all so loudly and you see Bingley and Jane hear her and like turn bright red and Lizzie hearing her and turning bright red. And then Lydia runs through with Denny's sword and she's like, screaming and laughing and he's like Lydia give me my sword back and then she goes Lord Denny fetch me a glass of wine I can scarce draw breath I'm so fat and it's phenomenal I love her I just I love Lydia but you can see how this would be very embarrassing for everyone else yeah so just a Becca study question at the end of this what do you think it is about this scene that's like because it's almost exactly what happens in the book Mm -hmm. to a T but why is it so much worse to see it because you can see everyone's reactions around them. Yes, that's exactly why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that really is it. I had so many empathetic cringe moments that it's like legit hard to watch. Because it's not just the Bingley sisters, for example. It is every other guest at this ball. It is seeing how in such close quarters they are, like at dinner, They're all sitting and the tables are next to each other and you can hear Mrs. Bennett shouting about Jane and Bingley and you can see Lizzie standing in the corner trying not to be noticed or associated with Lydia running through with a sword and like this is their family taking over this other family's space and being obnoxious and everyone's noticing. I guess I also felt like, and I could be misremembering this, but I feel like in the book, yeah, Lizzie is like recounting all of this, but this is her family and she's used to them. And so in the book, it feels like embarrassed, sure, but this is what she expects. So like when Mary plays, Lizzie's doing more of an eye roll than a mortification. And so, and I don't know if that is my interpretation of Lizzie in that part of the book, but it feels like she's not as mortified in the book or it's not as emphasized. I think you're right because I remember not picking up on it in the beginning right. I didn't really pick up on it until Darcy points it out to her later on in the book when he writes her the letter and is like your family is a disaster and I was like I guess they kind of are a disaster but we love them but here we get to see actually what Darcy is seeing I think what it is is I do think she is embarrassed at this point in the book she does like ask Daddy Bennett to go stop Mary from recording but I think it's not made distinctly worse than like any other moment mm. that her family's been embarrassing like There's a scene at Netherfield where Mrs. Bennett kind of yells at Darcy and Lizzie's embarrassed there and she's like, oh God, my family. And I think it translates the same way at the Netherfield ball, like, oh God, my family. So like she sees that her family's being embarrassing and she's embarrassed, but it's not like, oh, this is like ruined lives embarrassing. Do you know what I mean? Right, because she doesn't at this point feel that her life is going to be ruined by it because she's not in love with Darcy yet. Oh, also, I think the one other thing is it's clear Bingley is in on it in this piece and like the big fear is that like Jane will be embarrassed right right also this is the ball where Darcy just in the book is constantly popping up near her and then when she tries to talk to him like bowing and running away right so I think so they translated that in the film into he is just always staring at her and it comes across as so creepy creeper Darcy oh yeah yeah and she notices it and she clocks it and she also 
is like annoyed by it. Yeah. Like, oh, oh yeah. Stop staring at me. Yeah. And in the book, I think he's just literally always standing near her, not talking to her and driving her nuts. And like it, a vampire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that brings us to scene seven, which I believe is the last scene in the episode. It's the big one. The neg <laughs> proposal. Oh. So we start out with Kitty and Lizzie discussing the ball when Mrs. Bennett runs in to tell Lizzie that Collins needs to speak with her alone. And Lizzie's like, please don't leave me, please. And Mrs. Bennett is like, Lizzie, you will stay here and talk to Mr. Collins. And then she and Kitty leave her. And this is the proposal. And it is worse than I had imagined it because he literally, she tries to say something and he puts his hand up to stop her. Mm -hmm. Like, no, it is my turn now. And I was furious with him. First of all, Lizzie playing with the flowers in her discomfort is the funniest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) Big mood. But it's hard to like perceive that Lizzie's not sitting there like amused and absorbing the proposal. She's actively from the beginning being like, no, this is not necessary. And he's like, no, please. I know you're being modest in my presence but I know you want me. It's so gross. There's so much of that. There's so much of him telling her who she is, what she wants, and what she's thinking. And it's just disgusting. So gross. And you can see, like, across her face, it playing out, like, he's saying something nice about me. I'll accept that compliment. Oh, wait, he's saying something gross. What? And it's all just, like, crossing her face as he's speaking. And it's disgusting. Finally, she's like, Mr. Collins, slow your roll. I have not said yes, and I'm not going to. I really accept that it's an honor that you're proposing to me. I'm very sensible of the compliment, but it would be impossible for me to accept your proposal. And he will not take no for an answer. The line where he's like, you can't possibly be rejecting me. I know this is a sweet little game you're playing. Though, like, there is no way to guarantee that you will ever get another proposal of marriage. Uh, I think, I mean, that was not just terrible, but I think that's when it crossed the line for her as well. Just like, wait a word. Hello? Right. Uh, How dare you? (laughs) She's like, I'm hot. Okay. (laughs) Legit a catch. Not old yet. What are you doing? Right. And at some point she's like, I am not trying to trick you. I literally just don't want to marry you. And he keeps talking. So she just gets up and walks away from him. And there is a moment where I felt bad for him because yep. he kept talking and she was gone. Right at the end. And then it trails off and then he mops his brow. Yeah, he mops his oh. brow and it's pretty gross. <laughs> he was very stressed about it all. His upper lip was like glistening. It was disgusting. It was really gross. Um, and he, It was exerting a lot of energy. He was exerting a lot of energy doing this proposal and it's failing. Doing it so badly. Lizzie goes upstairs and Mrs. Bennett comes up screaming into Mr. Bennett's room saying, you have to talk to Lizzie. This is peak Mr. Bennett because he is so unconcerned. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. The way he says, seems a hopeless business, and then just like flips open his book. I was like, a mood. (laughs) That was a whole mood. This is the moment where he says, well, Lizzie, your mother will not see you again if you do not marry Mr. Collins, and I will never see you again if you do. Brilliant. (laughs) He's like, he even says, and, uh, I will not see you again if you do. And Mrs. Bennett, her face just falls and she's like, oh, Mr. Bennett. She makes an inhuman sound. Yes, she's just so, I don't know why she expected him to back her up as he has never backed her up. Ever. But like she did in this moment, like this is, 
she has a point. This is important. It could actually mean that, like, one of their daughters is going to be okay. But, like, also, he has never backed her up. He'll always take Lizzie's side. Lizzie's his favorite. What was she thinking? And then she still looks so betrayed. I know. Well, she's a very trusting woman. She is. And I do think that Mr. Bennett is actually a little bit revolutionary here because he is acknowledging that his daughter should have some agency over who she should marry, which mm. in this time period is like a clutch move on the part of Mr. Bennett. Also, he can't stand Mr. Collins. So if Mr. Collins had come to him and and, and I assume he did come to him at some point, although I don't know, because he said like, I will get your parents approval and then you'll have to say yes. So maybe he didn't yet. I don't think he did. I think he yeah, I think he was like gonna go talk to them about it but he mostly talked to mrs bennett about it it Mm. seems because she's the one who's like wait mr collins come back it just feels to me like mr bennett would have been like now you can't have lizzie like mary you know mary kitty sure but like not lizzie (laughs) you're not good enough for her yeah oh yeah what's interesting also that i'm thinking about now is that him marrying one of the daughters would be the only way to ensure that they can continue living there when he's dead. That's the whole idea, really. That's like, yeah. yeah. So that's bold on Mr. Bennett's part because like, yikes. But like also good. Honestly, all of this could have been avoided if Mr. Collins was like into Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Or if he was just not gross. Like if he had if just. If he was not gross too. If he had asked instead of telling mm-hmm. her they were going to get married. If he'd been like kind of socially reasonable and shown up and been like, hi, I know I'm a little awkward, but also I'm going to inherit this and I feel weird about it. So I'd like to marry one of you. Anyone up for that? Like just there's five of you. Would one of you like to entertain that thought? Like it would have gone very differently. Mary would have stripped down to her beautiful little like slip pinafore <laughs> and been like, I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> but like he just comes into it thinking it's his job to choose one of them. With his complete inability to judge what other people are thinking or feeling, ever. Right. He doesn't understand that they might not want to marry him. And he goes into that in the proposal. He's like, my connections with Lady Catherine de Bourgh, my inheritance of the estate, these are all greatly in my favor. And it's like, your personality is not in your favor, dude. And she actually says, you would not make me happy. And I cannot imagine that I would make you happy. And it's just like, exactly. "Mm." They would be very... (laughs) not suited she would just kill him in his sleep that's all oh yeah absolutely not be long she did them both a favor for sure she does them a big favor someone does them a big favor so then kidia is like going outside and they run into charlotte and they tell charlotte what's happened and charlotte is like oh well maybe i should invite him to dine with us tonight and lydia has a great line where she's like oh please do take him away and feed him he's been in high dudgeon all morning (laughs) because he's like running around the house wailing and mrs bennett's wailing and it's just a disaster charlotte goes in invites him to dinner and then he tells mrs bennett that he's leaving and it's all for the best and he'll see her tomorrow then he like goes off with charlotte to dinner which is where this episode ends and we know a big cliffhanger is coming because we know what happens with him and charlotte yes two things i was gonna say one you can see the wheels turning in charlotte's head at this very moment question about that yeah question about that because does she does she like want to marry him because she says should i invite him to dine with us and then we zoom in on her face and she like thinks about it for a second yeah she's basically like oh We have an available man looking for a wife. He has a living. Isn't she like 25? Like she's older than She's 27. 27. 27, yeah. So, and she doesn't have any other means of support. She was already looking at him like, okay, I could could make this bargain. But she wouldn't have while he was interested in Lizzie. As soon as she finds out that Lizzie is absolutely saying no, 
she's like, okay, well then I'm not, I'm not stepping on anybody. I guess I get this right. one. Yeah. Huh. Charlotte knows what bargain she's making. Yeah, because I hadn't thought of it in the book. I didn't think of it as like she wanted to marry him. I thought of it as like he proposed and she accepted. Oh no no no! This mm-hmm. is this is like a move on Charlotte's part. That's- for sure. I'm sure she was like finding a way to get alone with him and say, I'm so sorry about the way that Lizzie has treated you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure she did that. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And I, uh, but I, I feel like that didn't happen in the book. I thought that Charlotte would have wanted to do better for herself, but I guess he's doing pretty well. She just wants a marriage of money. She just doesn't want to be a burden to her family. She'll take anyone. I forgot she has like sisters. She's also the one who was like, listen, don't snub Mr. Darcy. He's worth a lot of money. Right. I like her. She's just pragmatic. And part of that is that she is past the age where they're supposed to be getting a lot. Like she went through that bit, didn't find that match and knows what it's like on the other side of that and knows what it would be like to be a burden on her parents for the rest of her life and you know doesn't want that for herself yeah i've always loved that charlotte makes that call and then just manages the hell out of mr collins for like the rest of their lives she does and i think it's really important that we see that next to lizzie who's kind of got this ideal love story instead you have charlotte who's like well actually i don't have a way of making money for myself i don't want to be a burden on my family this man is not evil and he can provide for me so yes i'll take this marriage Right. I mean, he's really just odious and annoying. Yeah. <laughs> point two is cutting it off here. What does that give to like the viewership at this point in the story? Where do we end the story now? It's a cliffhanger. It's going to give the illusion of time passing in between Charlotte going off with Mr. Collins and Mr. Collins proposing, which in reality, it's only like a day. But having a full episode break in between is definitely going to give the illusion that they were able to get, get to know each other. Yes, totally. It also ends the episode on the Mr. Collins mortification and kind of distracts from all of the family embarrassment that was the scene immediately before that. So that stuff is kind of in your head. But what you're going to remember moving out of the episode is, wow, Mr. Collins was terrible and Lizzie just put him in his place and doesn't have to marry him and isn't that like, yay, right? So (laughs) it lands on a moment of, It's triumph in the sense that, like, Lizzie doesn't have to marry someone she strongly dislikes. In the reality of the world Austin has created, it's also a really bad decision on Lizzie's part, (laughs) practically speaking. Right. So it kind of lands in that spot where you as the audience are just, like, so on Lizzie's side. You're like, yeah, no, don't marry that dude. He's terrible. I echo everything everyone has said. You guys (laughs) totally nailed that question. Uh, That brings us to our standby study questions. So... First, best line delivery or moment? I had several options. I think my favorite is probably Lizzie's response to Darcy asking her if she wants to dance, which goes along the lines of why I had not. uh, I thank you. Yes. Why could I not think of an excuse? (laughs) Excellent. Excellent choice. I had uh, what I actually ended up with for my favorite line delivery was the first Lady Catherine de Bourgh. I listened to a lot of them. And the first one is at that dinner scene when he's like, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And you can just, (laughs) it's the most worshipful name anyone has ever said. And I was just like, oh my God, you nailed it. Because then he says it 8 million more times. But every time you're like, oh, right. Yeah, that first one really encapsulates his reverence for her. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was floored by it. I think if I'm going to pick one, it's going to be Mr. Bennett saying... 
seems a hopeless business and then opening his book book. yes (laughs) yes also very good just an incredible an incredible showing from daddy bennett okay then the next one is notable additions to the story via the movie mary mary yeah mary Mary being in love mary and kitty they gave kitty more to do which distinguished her from lydia i think they gave her a bunch of lydia's lines um Mm -hmm. from the book which, like, gave her something to say. Also, she's likable. Like, mm. Lydia is a lot, and you can kind of see that Kitty follows along, follows her. Even though Kitty's older, Kitty follows Lydia's lead. But you can kind of tell that there's a personality brewing under there. Well, she has a couple brief scenes with other people, and you can see that she actually likes her other sisters, too. And Yeah. yeah. They made Kitty slightly more of a person, so it was a bit less kitty Exactly. I feel weird saying Kitia in this, except for when they're standing together. But otherwise, they definitely have their own personalities, which is kind of cool. Yeah, they absolutely do. I agree with both of those picks. I'd also add on the setup of the Lydia and Wickham stuff earlier mm. on. Yes, for I sure. I think that's, that's really well done. And best and worst aspects of the film. You don't have to give both. You can give one or the other. I think it's got to be something with the ball for the best. I want to jump off of that a little bit. And one of my favorite things that I thought they did incredibly well, it was at the ball, but the framing of all of these shots showing you not just what's happening in the foreground, but who was in the background of each shot was also important. There were always a lot of people. So there's this opulence and this like that feeling, but also just if you watch it more than once, you start noticing, oh God, that person's reacting. And I didn't even notice they were in this shot the first time, which I thought was a kind of cool way to represent the... 8 million billion layers Jane Austen puts in what she writes. Yeah, like Mrs. Bennett watching Darcy and Lizzie interact or Jane and Bingley dancing directly behind them or Darcy being in the background of that shot between Lizzie and Jane or like, yeah, yeah, so many little moments like that. I also think that the dogs are always good. I love a yes. good dog. Mm. And I mentioned this a lot, but like the close quarters of everything, it's all a lot smaller than I had imagined. And I think that adds a, an awesome layer of like being able to hear everything. Like when Mrs. Bennett's at the ball talking loudly about Jane and Bingley, for example, you can see everyone reacting to that because they can all hear. Excellent choices. Um, I'm going to shout my f- favorite aspect of this episode of the film, which is the performance of the guy who plays Mr. Collins. It's <laughs> one of the best comedic performances in BBC Masterpiece. And I just feel like I wanted to like shout it because it's just so funny. He's very good. I may have something to say about that myself in a moment. <laughs> so who wins the episode? Well, I think it is the actor who plays Mr. Collins, which I know is a little bit of a stretch. But for real, he was just amazing. Like being that unlikable in so many millions of ways and just the incredible details of the performance were just beautiful. Probably the moment that really drove it home for me was when he asked Elizabeth for the first two dances and the face he makes in that moment. It's just like, my God, man, I looked him up. David Bamber is his name, I think. And I mean, I was just like, oh my God, because this is Mr. Collins's episode. This is his moment. We see him later, but this is his moment. And he just, I mean, he just ran with it. Yeah. I'd have to agree with that. He embodies simpering. Like whenever I read the word simpering, it's like, and that's what he does all the time. Yes, yes. Oh, yes, it's exactly correct. Which I also, now that I've said that, he also kind of embodies simping, right? Oh, yeah. Isn't that like excessive chivalry? For Lady Catherine, yeah. Yeah. He is simping for Lady Catherine the entire time. Fully. Yeah, and while I hate him, that it has to be the actor, obviously not Mr. Collins himself. 
um, <laughs> because yes. fuck Mr. Collins. But the actor for sure wins this. He's got the like ducked head and looking up thing, and it's just like yeah. The bangs. Ugh. And you halfway through, I was like, of course you need a wife. Someone needs to cut your hair. That haircut. So a quarantine we all, mood. We all need a wife to cut our hair right now. <laughs> so thank you, David Bember. You have won this episode. Your performance of Collins is masterful. Masterful. That concludes this episode of Pot and Prejudice. Evan, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have stuff you want to plug for our listeners if they want to find you other places in the pod world or on social media? Sure. Uh, so my my main show is called This Planet Needs a Name. It's so good. <laughs> thank you, Molly. It's at Needs a Name Pod on basically everywhere, but we're more active on Twitter. So feel free to look us up there. I'm Evan Tess Murray, and I am just the only person with that selection of names. So if you want to get in touch, Google me. I'm really easy to find. And I'd say if my show and myself, if we are nothing else, it is deeply invitational. So if anyone wants to say hi, I'm always happy to make a new friend. Well, you've made a new friend today. Yes. So thank you guys so much for joining us. Until next week, stay proper. And find yourself someone to cut your hair. (laughs) Amen. Bye, guys. Bye. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our beautiful show art is designed by Torrance Brown. To learn more about our show and our team, you can check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you like what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us, or just drop us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.